0: in church on Easter Sunday morning when he said to his mom he's starting to feel sick and mom said well he asked his mom can we leave now and she said no the service isn't over yet he said well I think I'm going to throw up and she said go out the front door and around the back of the church and there's some bushes just throw up there (coughs) a mother must be the fifth child anyways (laughs) um, (laughs) after about 60 seconds Marty returned to the pew alongside his mother and she said, did you throw up? He said, yes, a, a little embarrassed. And she said, well, how could have you gone all the way to the back of the church and, and then come all the way back this quick? And he said, I didn't have to go out of the church, Mommy. They have a box right next to the front door that says, for the sick. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a good one. That's my Tina when I got here joke. So now here's my one that I was going to say because I had a segue, so I have to give <laughs> two. Um, There was a young 7th grade boy given the assignment of bringing Patrick Henry's uh, great address at a PTA meeting. And so he stood up trembling before all the parents as he was going along giving the whole speech. He was doing great until he got to the last all-important line where he said, Give me puberty or give me death. (laughs) Yeah, that sounds like a 7th grade boy. I don't know. That's not the word they'd use, but at any rate, um, sometimes we say things we don't mean by accident, but that was not the case with the people we're studying today and the things that they said in very determined hearts. So we know from the inspired example of prayers throughout scripture, whether it's David in the Psalms or like Hannah and for Samuel, that it is proper to express our concerns, our burdens, our struggles, our fears to the Lord. He knows what we're thinking after all. And he wants us to come to him openly and honestly in our prayers. But that is not the honesty that we see uh, that God is looking for when we look at the words of the people we're studying in this book today. As we come to the last chapters of Malachi, we continue to see this complaining spirit of the people of Israel all these years after their return from exile. The people have a complaint against the rule of God, and they accuse him of being unjust. They failed to see their own sin. They only accused jo- uh, God of not exercising justice. How arrogant to assume that the holy, omniscient, sovereign God of the universe must meet the perceived sense of justice by humans. There certainly is nothing new in Scripture, though. Um, ever since Adam and Eve sinned, what did they do? They blamed other people for their sin. And the underlying fault really is God. He allowed the serpent to come to Eve, and Eve blamed the serpent. That's why she sinned. Then Adam blamed the wife God you gave me, and that's why I took and ate the fruit. But the t- and th- the truth is that God made Satan. God did allow Satan to go into the garden. But as we study this chapter where the blame uh, often goes towards God for trying circumstances um, in his sovereignty, he is dealing with sin. And we must learn and apply the truths that are seen in this book. The question I have for you is that who is it that you blame for the difficulties that arise in your life? Is it just the neighbor who's obnoxious? Is it just the incompetent doctor that you have? Is it just difficult people that you work with? Well, who's the one who made the people in your life that are annoying and trying? And who's the one who brought them into your life? Okay, and is it that you blame circumstances? Well, who's the one who controls circumstances and allowed these circumstances to come in for his purposes so let's be careful that we, n- we don't fall into the same type of thinking as the people we're studying about today as always thankful for um, the resources I have of my husband's library in working on this message I want to pick up today where Vicki left off so it's the last verse of chapter 2 verse 17 where God is weary of Israelites words you have wearied the Lord with your words, yet you say, how have we worried him? In that you say, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Where is the God of justice? Can you imagine saying, God, you delight in evil. You're, you delight in people who do evil. The words of the people literally left God gasping as they exhausted his patience As I said before, God wants us to speak to him openly and honestly with sincere hearts. However, the words of these people were simply an ongoing common old argument that had already been addressed by God, but they kept bringing it up again. The issue for the people, why do the ungodly people prosper and why doesn't God deal with them and their wickedness? And God is so weary of their complaining words as they have given these three specific complaints against God. First of all, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord. The Jewish people had returned to their homeland, and they expected to have great blessing and prosperity and agricultural blessing, but that did not happen. And so they experienced poverty, and that led them then to this complaint. The Lord must delight in the wicked and those who do evil, because look at them, they're just having a great life, and everything's going great. Therefore, God must approve of them, because he's prospering them. And then the next question, where is the God of justice? A very sarcastic question that is an attack on the character of God. They were saying that because wicked people prosper, it's apparent that God doesn't bring judgment to them in their sin. They just get by with it. Now, let's not pretend to be shocked by such terrible disrespect uh, towards God by these people because most of us have entertained thoughts in our own lives. When we've looked around and we've seen people getting away with such vile things, such evil, even evil done to you. And then you look at their lifestyles that are totally defined to God, and everything seems to be going well. And then you look at God's choice servants struggling just for basic necessities as they have have a heart to serve the Lord, and it just doesn't seem right in our little sense of justice. We know that Old Testament Israel is commanded to obey God as a nation, and if they did so they would experience material blessing. This was a promise to the nation, not every individual in the nation. It was also a promise to a nation that who was obedient to keep the law of God. The nation was also promised cursing if they were disobedient to the word of God. And they were experiencing at this time discipline of God for their rebellion and sin. You know, God causes the rain and the sun to shine on the evil and the good and the righteous. But the the truth taught throughout the Old Testament scripture is that prosperity is very temporary in time and that judgment ultimately comes. The wealthy ungodly of this world have only their wealth in this very short temporary life. That's it. That's all there is for the billions of years to come. The people Malachi was writing to had been given this truth. They knew this truth throughout the word of God. You just read through the Psalms and you see the same question and They should not have wearied God by complaining about something they ought to have understood that had been taught to them. They should never have accused God of being unjust. They were not sincerely asking questions out of a burdened heart, but they were complaining to God about what he does, how he does it, when he does it, as if he doesn't know what he's doing. And how often we really in our heart of hearts do the same thing (laughs) when we really don't like the circumstances God's allowed. What are you doing? Well, we go to chapter 3, the God of justice. Behold, I'm going to send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord, the Lord of hosts. So these people claim they wanted to know where the God who judges sin is. And the answer is, oh, he's coming. He's coming. But before he comes, he will send a messenger to prepare the way. The Hebrew word for messenger, as you saw in your study, is angel, but it doesn't be it's not referring to an angelic being here. Of course, Malachi's name means messenger, same thing, but it's not referring to him either because this verse is a reference about when the Messiah comes to his temple and the messenger is someone in the future, not at the time of Malachi. <coughs> the only one this messenger could be is John the Baptist because it was his role to clear or prepare the way before the Lord. John was more than a prophet. He's the one. We've had the privilege of studying this chapter so we know exactly that he was going to come based on this verse hundreds and hundreds of years before he showed up. And Jesus makes it clear who this is and what this was all about when he said in Matthew eleven ten that John the Baptist is the fulfillment of Malachi 3, 1. He was sent to prepare the way for Jesus Christ appearing to Israel. Before the Messiah, Jesus would reveal himself. John was to come And remove any obstacles of sin by preaching a message of repentance. So John was preparing the way for Jesus the first time that he came. John prepared that way. But it would be at a second coming that Jesus will come then as the judge, the judge of sin and the wicked. And that is what the rest of this chapter is now about. The people wanted the Lord to come and judge the wicked Gentiles. And they asked, where is he? Why isn't he doing that? And the answer is, oh, he will come suddenly to his temple. This will take place when Christ returns at a second coming at a moment they will not expect like a thief in the night. Jesus is the messenger of the covenant and the angel of the Lord, remember, is that pre-incarnate Christ of the Old Testament. They desired him to come and judge the wicked Gentiles, but they were in for a shock because it will not just be them that he is judging. Judgment will come, but who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire. And like fuller soap, he will sit as a smelter and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver so that they may present to the Lord offerings in righteousness. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old, as in former years. So when the Messiah comes, there is no one who will be able to handle his appearing because he comes with judgment. And the focus of these people was God judging the sins of everybody else. But they failed to see their own sins are going to be judged as well. And how often do we do the same type of thing when we're sitting listening to a sermon and we're hoping that the people around us that we know are listening and get it while we don't see any application to our own selves? Same type of thing. When the Messiah comes, uh, who could appear? Who can appear before him from the nation of Israel and handle his appearing without being judged? No one. God is going to purify the nation of Israel. He's compared here to a refiner's fire and fuller's soap. And, you know, the fire purges out any unclean things from the metal. And the fuller's soap, it removes the dirt. So during the tribulation, the seven years preceding the return of Christ as the judge, God will be cleansing the leaders of Israel. As you recall from our study in Zechariah there will and, and other studies in, the, in Revelation and Daniel in the past, uh, that there will be sacrifices going on during the tribulation. There will be a rebuilt temple in Jerusalem. And God will indeed pour out his wrath on the rebellious Gentile nations of the world as he's directly intervening with mankind during those years. But he is going to bring Israel to himself and it is going to be a refiner's fire of horrific purging. God will use the persecution of the satanically inspired Antichrist who is going to have an influence that rises anti-Semitism across the planet and an unbelievable attitude and actions that that's going to bring about. And this will bring Israel to her knees as two-thirds of Israel will die. And ultimately, the fulfillment will come of Romans eleven twenty six, where the one-third of Israel will be saved. The people of Malachi's day wondered, where is God's justice? But verse 5 tells us when God's judgment falls, it will fall on the Jewish people as well who practice the sins he's mentioning now. Sorcerers, witchcraft, and the occult. Likely due in Malachi's time to the influence of those who had married foreign women who were prostitutes and were involved in all those kinds of activities in their false worship. Sorcery has always been forbidden in scripture. It is an interaction with demonic beings the very enemy of God. God will judge adulterers, those who in Malachi's day divorced their wives to marry these foreign women, and they will be judged by God for this. Those who swear falsely, those who are in a court of law and for bribes or whatever reason, uh, swear falsely. And those who oppress uh, by not giving wages earned by those working for them, uh, as well as those who oppress the widow and the orphan and the foreigner. These people were taking advantage of all of these uh, who could not properly defend themselves. They took advantage of their helpless state, and God was going to judge them for this. God would not allow Israel to continue to get away with sin, and he is gracious to give time to repent, but there is a payday someday. God would not allow Israel to continue to get away with the sin. As I said in verse 6, he says, For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O sons of Jacob, are not consumed. Did they really think they could get away with all these social abuses that were clear denials of obeying the word of God? (coughs) They seemed to have no fear of God as they thought that God was like them, uh, that he would not judge them for breaking his law. After all, they're his chosen people. God is unchanging, and if that was not the case, they would have been wiped out by God for their sin many years before. You remember how Moses prayed to God to spare this nation many times when God wanted to just wipe them off the planet? It was Moses who reminded God of the truth, saying the Lord is slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, forgiving iniquity and transgression, but he will by no means clear the guilty. Pardon, I pray, the iniquity of this people according to the greatness of your loving kindness, just as you also have forgiven this people from Egypt even until now. So Moses interceded for them in Numbers 14. Malachi has proved that God is just and that no one ever gets away with sin. His judgment may be delayed, but that delay is only because of his graciousness and patience, which we just studied in 2 Peter chapter 3. So let us be careful that we don't fall into the same faulty thinking where we see the sins of others so very clearly and fail to deal with the sins in our own hearts. That brings us to the sin of robbing God. Let's just add to the list. Uh, Israel's spiritual failure continues. From the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes and not kept them. Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? In verse 6, we saw that God doesn't change in his goodness and who he is and his character. He's unchanging. What a contrast to Israel who doesn't change in their rebelliousness. Despite her rebellion, which in time will lead to ultimately to the rejection of their Messiah, according to Paul in Romans 11, God has not rejected permanently his people, his chosen people. It has always been a small elect remnant that God saves. And our study of Zechariah really clarified that one day that small remnant will look on him whom they have pierced, and they will repent and mourn. The attitude of the people in the time of Malachi is like those who say, What? Have we done something wrong? Verse 8, God gets very specific. Will a man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you in tithes and offerings? God answers their question by accusing them of robbery. As you know, the Old Testament law required tithes and offerings from first fruits, which were to be given to the priests. It was how the the sanctuary, the temple, the priesthood all was able to function. The tithe was 10% of all their produ- produce and livestock, and there were several 10% requirements to provide for the Levites. Another requirement coming to Jerusalem for a festive meal, and there was a third uh, every three years to go to the poor. The initial tithe came to about 23% that they would owe to the Lord each year. So how are the people robbing God? <coughs> Either by not paying it at all or just paying a fraction of it. In verse 9, God says he will curse them for their robbery. This curse was a part of the Mosaic Covenant that they made with God in Deuteronomy 28. They would be hit with agricultural crisis as seen in verse 11 if they failed to give as God had commanded them. And, you know, the same principle holds true today when it comes to honoring the Lord by being obedient in giving to him. When we fail to honor him and obey him in our giving, Somehow or another, expenses are eaten up of what we thought we were saving by not giving. You know how that goes? <laughs> Don't have m- enough money to give to that need and then I everything breaks in the house. Sometimes it is God's discipline of his children when we fail to give him from what he has provided for us to give and share. In verse 10, we're reminded that God promises that those who honor him with their giving will experience his provision and blessing. For the nation of Israel... This would be evidenced by their agricultural blessing. But the Bible teaches throughout Scripture that God owns everything, Old Testament, New Testament, same truth, and whatever that we have is a gift from God. The nation of Israel owed God what they were commanded specifically by him to give. Obedience in giving would bring God's blessing, so the nations would recong- the nations all around them would recognize what a great God that they had. When we come to the New Testament, we read nothing ever about giving your tithe. We're commanded to give the first day of the week in proportion to how God has prospered us. It may be way more than 10%. We see in 2 uh, Corinthians 9 that God is concerned that about our motives for giving and our attitude of joy when we give. Giving is a proof of our love for the Lord and our love for his people. We are to give out of obedience and submission and God will bless his people who obey. When we give to him, we are giving really face it. We're already just giving to him what already belongs to him in the first place. We are simply to be faithful and wise stewards of what he entrusts us to have. So, how are you doing in this area of your spiritual life? You know, it's so easy to justify money spent on something for self, even though the Lord may be dealing in your heart for a particular need of a brother or sister that you're aware of. Next, we see that they despise God's service. They say, your words have been arrogant. God says, your words have been arrogant against me, says the Lord. Yet you say, what have we spoken against you? Wow, is sin blinding or what? You know, it's really stunning. The people are a total contradiction to the promises that (coughs) were reaffirmed in the previous verses. They They seem completely ignorant of their sins. And they ask again, well, what have we said against you? The explanation is given in the next verse. You have said it is vain to serve God. And what profit is there to have kept his charge? And that we have walked in mourning (coughs) before the Lord of hosts. Like we've been obeying, we've been doing everything you say and look at our lives. It doesn't even matter. It's purposeless to, to obey your word. Having accused God of being unjust, they now claim that it is empty and vain to serve him. Well, it's true that their worship (laughs) is empty and vain, but they felt they had carried out obedience to the law. Sin is very blinding. You, You know that in our own lives, it warps how we think. They thought it was God who was not keeping his promises to them. Such blasphemy as they accuse God of not loving them, of not being worthy of the full tithe to be given to the Lord. And this call to repentance displayed their spiritual blindness and arrogance. They were guilty of legalism, doing outward religious activities with hearts that were so far from the Lord. And you know, you realize as you're a student of scripture that uh, this is only going to intensify now and, and get thicker and thicker as the next 400 years go by. We're looking at the people for that hear the last word from God. And now what it comes when Jesus comes back and, f- and comes to them as their Messiah, what's going to happen? What does it look like, the religious world of Israel <laughs> at that time? Well, this is, this is the springboard. Their works were external. Like legalists of every era, they kept an outward code, even though their hearts were so far from uh, being warmed to the gods of the Bible. They challenged God, yet failed to see their own sins were condemning them. That brings us to the book of remembrance because God always does have a a remnant, as I said. Then those who feared the Lord spoke to one another. So there was a little group. And the Lord gave attention and heard it. And the book of remembrance was written before him for those who fear the Lord and who esteem his name. They will be mine, says the Lord of hosts, on the day that I prepare my own possession. And I will spare them as a man spares his own son who serves him. So you will again distinguish between the righteous and the wicked, between the one who serves God and the one who does not serve him. As I said, there's always been a remnant of faithful believers in the Lord. They feared the Lord and they worshiped him as God Almighty. And when they met together, this little band of believers, it was not to complain, but it was to encourage one another with all that they saw going on around them. This was a small group, but God paid attention to them and he kept a record of their words. The Lord claimed them as his own and he promised to spare them from future judgment. These acts were written in a book of remembrance before the Lord. Of course, God doesn't need a book to remember. He's not in past, present and future. He's out of time and he doesn't need something from the past to remind him. This was for the encouragement of and for the assurance of the godly people. Just as we read about books being kept in heaven in Psalm 56, 8, where also a bottle with all our tears are kept. God in his tenderness keeps before him those that truly reverence him and think on his name. They will be remembered in the day that God has appointed to carry out his purposes, the day of his judgment when he comes again. They will be spared his judgment. The question is, and uh, the prayer of my heart and everyone who knows christ is that this is this what is true about you (coughs) it is only possible to be spared judgment when we come to jesus christ and put our faith and confidence in him alone not him (coughs) and the things that i do religiously not him and the fact that i'm basically kind of good (coughs) no it's realizing the debt of sin we owe a perfect holy god that we can never ever pay never be good enough And that's why Jesus bore the wrath of God, and it was his hatred of sin on the cross, and he took it on behalf of all who would believe so that they would be spared judgment. That's our only hope. And now the last message of the Old Testament, and he's going to address, you want judgment? Okay, here it is. Mm -hmm. Judgment of evildoers. For behold, the day is coming, burning like a furnace, and all the arrogant, and every evildoer will be chaff, and the day that is coming will set them ablaze, Says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch, utter destruction. Because God is unchanging in his holiness and in his perfect justice and righteousness, it is inevitable that his judgment will come upon the wicked. He does not change. God's judgment may be postponed, but it will not be forgotten or eliminated, even though people may wish that it won't happen. The people has, has said, God doesn't punish evildoers. That's the problem that we're dealing with. He just overlooks it. Well, here's his answer. A specific day is coming, the day that he comes, a time referred to in scripture as the day of the Lord. We have seen this in our studies over and over again in Zechariah. We know it refers to the time when God will directly intervene in humanity on the planet Earth. With horrific events, it'll take place after the church is raptured. It covers the seven-year tribulation, the return of Christ at the end of that time, the millennial kingdom, the great white throne judgment at the end of the kingdom age. When God deals in judgment with unbelievers, the destruction of the wicked will be horrific and complete. It will be like a burning furnace bringing total destruction. All evildoers will be judged. There will be no one who escapes. All will be completely destroyed. This is not a reference to destruction like annihilation, though many use this as a proof text for that. Ca- that their view on that. <coughs> but that is not true. We know from Daniel 12 and from Revelation 20 that there will be a resurrection of all the unsaved. They are simply in hell right now waiting to stand before him at the great white throne judgment where they will be sentenced for eternity. Scripture speaks of torment that continues forever and ever, and ever, and Jesus specifically talks about torment based on knowledge that there will be levels of torment in in eternity. Malachi is teaching complete judgment, complete exclusion from the kingdom of God forever. Ladies, if we really took five minutes to think about this, I believe it would be a great motivator to being more bold in being a witness, you know, it's so easy to just go through life, but all the people that you know or rub shoulders with or cross paths with, they don't know Christ. This is their destiny. This is we're, <laughs> we're the ones to shed light on what's going to happen. We know it's going to happen. We've been studying the Bible, so we know where it's going. That brings us to freedom for the righteous, but for you who fear my name, the son of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings and you will go forth and skip about like calves from the stall. You will tread down the wicked. Think about that. Israel's never had victory (laughs) in treading down the wicked. For they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day which I am preparing, says the Lord of hosts. Those who fear the name of the Lord, as seen in verse 16, that we just saw that small remnant, will not be blasted by the heat of the furnace of God's judgment, but rather they will experience the warmth of the son of righteousness with healing in his wings. This is a reference to Jesus, Israel's Messiah. He is called the son of righteousness and he is the Lord, our righteousness. When Christ returns, he being perfectly righteous will right every wrong. He will set everything straight. And free from being confined or oppressed like a calf in a stall, the people of Israel will be set free, happy, jumping, leaping, God triumphs over all of his enemies and the godly remnant of Jewish people at that point will actually join Christ in the fight when he arrives at a second coming. And for the first time in the history of Israel, the small remnant will triumph over the ungodly who oppressed them. We saw this in Zechariah 14. The people in Malachi's day needed to remember that their victory and freedom from evil is something in the future. So in the meantime, they needed to remember and follow God by being obedient to his word. As I said, for the next 400 years, there will be silence, no prophet from God to call them back to obedience, to call them back to obeying the word of God. Now they're just going to get deeper and deeper in the mire of legalism. But God will send salvation for the repentant. Behold, I'm going to send you Elijah, the prophet, before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. He will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers so that I will not come and smite the land with a curse we've studied Revelation, we've studied Daniel and Zechariah, you know that before the final half of the tribulation, God sends two witnesses uh, uh, to the earth. And the two witnesses will be there on the earth during the tribulation, and they will have an incredible ministry similar to Elijah and Moses. They will devour the enemies of God and Israel with fire. They will stop rain. They will turn water into blood. They will bring plagues on the earth like Moses did at the time of Egypt. This ministry of (coughs) of this future Elijah will have such a huge role on the nation of Israel that many Jewish people will begin to turn to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and their hearts will be prepared by the preaching of these two witnesses for their imminent return of their Messiah. This is how the Old Testament ends. The promise of a curse or destruction unless there is repentance. The last word of the Old Testament is curse. There's only one remedy for this curse. And, you know, think about it. The New Testament opens up with the book of Matthew, with the genealogy of Jesus Christ, son of Abraham. And he came and became the cursed one on behalf of us as he hung on a tree. Only through Jesus can Israel escape the awful curse. And the same is true for us. The curse came with the fall of man at the Garden of Eden. And at the time here of Malachi, 400 years after John the Baptist was arriving on the scene in fulfillment of what we see in this chapter, reminding Israel to repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. So the question, ladies, for us is, do we fear the Lord? Do we live a life of continual repentance, keeping up to date, so that we're not blinded by our own sins, just like Israel was blinded? I, I mean, we stand back and go, how could they think that? Oh, but things that we do and how can we think that's okay and the great truth in this chapter true is that God is unchanging he will keep his word that's a blessing because we're thrilled the good things he's going to keep in his promises to us of eternal life and forgiveness and in his presence for glory but it's true all the other things that he will keep in judgment of sin we find hope in the character of Of God and the holiness of God and the consistency and constancy of his amazing attributes but what a great reminder in this book to keep heed to our own hearts and our own lives let's pray (coughs) father I thank you for this little book in size but packed with so much truth and again truth about the future Lord I pray for each of us here that we would not be characterized by sin, that we would not be blinded by our own sin and only seeing the sins of those around us that we rub shoulders with or that we read about on Facebook or that we um, have as neighbors or um, family members that cause distress in our lives, Lord, I pray that we would remove the blinders and have honest hearts before you of humility to be like this remnant that we read about at the time of Malachi who sought you, who didn't complain about you, Lord. I pray that we would honor you with the way we live today and bring you glory and that we would be faithful as we await your return, Lord. I thank you that it could be today. That would be wonderful. (laughs) Even so, come, Lord Jesus. In the meantime, help us to walk in a manner worthy of you and please you in all respects. In Jesus' name.